You know, as we jump into the Gospel of Matthew, I couldn't help but wonder, is there, is there anybody in here wondering why we still need the Gospels? Now, and I bring that up. <laughs> Not John. <laughs> I bring that up because especially some of us who have been in the church for 40, 50, 60 years, we've been through the Gospels a few times, to say the least, starting in Sunday school and all the way up into our adulthood, right? Well, I want to share one reason I believe we still desperately need the Gospels in our Bible. There was a poll done this year, 2022, of people who classify themselves as evangelical Christians. One of the ways evangelical Christian was defined was people who say they strongly agree that the Bible is the highest authority for faith. So people, they found these people agreed with that, called themselves evangelicals. And I want you to listen to what they found among people in that group. They put the statement on their religious belief is a matter of personal opinion. It is not about objective truth. 38% of professed evangelicals agreed with that. It's not about history. It's not about objective truth. It's, it's about personal opinion. 56% said that God accepts the worship of all religions. Two-thirds of them believe that humans are born in a state of innocence, not sin, which begs the question, why then a Savior? Listen to this last one. Evangelicals who say Jesus is a good teacher, but not God in the flesh, jump from 30% to 43%. 43% in this survey. That's why we need the Gospels. Even in church. I think about what's happening in the church world, and I think about an old story that I heard. Man was wandering through the, the country, and he saw the side of a barn. And on the side of a barn, there were a number of bullseyes. And in the middle of all the bullseyes was a, a bullet hole right in the very center. And the farmer who lived on the farm came out, and the guy walking by said, You must be a pretty good shot. I see all those bullet holes right in the middle of those bullseyes. And you know what the farmer told him? He said, Oh, it's no... No trouble at all. First I shoot at the barn and then, then I draw my bullseye around it. <laughs> and it's humorous in that sense, but it's sad where I'm going with it. I think that's what a lot of people in our world and churches are doing today. I believe what I want to believe about Jesus, whether it's from my own imagination or false teaching that I picked up along the way or just how I want him to be. And then I build my faith and my beliefs around that. And what I want to tell us is, as believers in Jesus Christ who have the Bible, that's not how we do it. It is both our privilege and our responsibility to look to his word, the gospels, and elsewhere, and see where he has put the bullseye as to Christian life, as to who Jesus is, and the aim to line up our faith, our beliefs, our living with what we find. That's why we still need the Gospels.
haven't answered that question, there, there may still be some wondering, why do we need four? Why not one? You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And, and the truth is there were many written accounts about Jesus' life, but only four that are Holy Spirit-inspired and led of God to be included in his word. But why? I like what Henrietta Mears said here. She, she said she was in a museum one time, and there were three different paintings of a king, one from the front, one from the right side, and one from the left side. And, and somebody asked the painter, why did you do three? And he said, there's a sculptor that wanted to make a bust of the king's head, and in order for him to make it, he needed to see all of those sides so he could make an accurate likeness. You see where she's going with the Gospels? You can learn truth about Jesus in any one of the Gospels, but it's as we dive into all four that we get that more well-rounded picture from God, not only of who Jesus is, but of who the Father is. Because what, what did Jesus say? He came to reveal the Father. So I want to start out, Matthew, by meeting the author. Matthew the tax collector. Now, even today, not many are people saying, yay, a tax collector, right? But back then it was even worse because whether he worked for Herod or the Romans, tax collectors were viewed as traitors and many of them indeed were. They were viewed as scalpers who took not only what was owed, but more to line their own lives with money. And many of them did. That Jesus would choose him, and we'll talk about that more as we get into the book, would have been shocking. But it's encouraging at the same time. I think about the different authors and think about how they represent different groups. You could call him the one that represents someone who works with the government. You go to Mark. We don't know what he did for a living. All we know is that he likely got most of his information from the apostle Peter. Luke represents the, the highly educated class, the doctor Dr. Luke, as he's called in the Bible. And then John, what did he do? The, the fishermen, the, the hard working class. And I love that, that God chose people from very different walks of life to, to share with us. And I think about that. And I believe the same is true today among God's followers. Not that he inspires us to write any more scripture. We got all the scripture we're ever going to get. But that he uses us as his ambassadors and he uses your unique experiences and mine, my background, the things I've seen, the things you've seen to help us connect with the people he wants us to connect with. Isn't that cool? See, I believe there's people you could reach that I could never reach simply because you, you share something with them that I don't. And there may be people I can reach that you couldn't because I share something with them that you don't. I love that. That's a little bit about the author. Now I want to talk about the audience of the book. I want to meet the audience. And, and in the truest sense, we all know that any of these Gospels are valuable for all of mankind. That's why we're here diving in, right? But I also believe, along with the scholars, that each of these authors had a primary focus in mind as they wrote their book. And you find hints of their audience in their book. Mark, for example, he, he is all about action. Jesus went here. He did this. He did this. That's why many believe he was writing to the Romans primarily. The Romans were people of action. Many of them did not want to sit down and have a theological, philosophical discussion. They want to know what can Jesus do. So Mark shows them his power. 
Luke, many believe, he wrote to the, the Greeks. The Greeks talked a lot about what is ideal manhood. So, so you see Luke writing of Jesus as fully man. You see him praying in that book often. You see angels ministering to him. Who is John writing to? Many believe his primary audience was the church, but also any who would read of Jesus Christ. What about Matthew? Well, I agree with many that his primary focus was his Jewish nation. His Jewish nation. I want you to think about the Jewish people, where we left them in the book of Esther. You know, Esther and Mordecai and others were at the heart of the Persian Empire in Susa. Many of the Jews, about 50,000, had gone back to Jerusalem. They're rebuilding. But they're still under pagan rule. The, the Persian ruler is over them. And after we left them, then the, the Greeks would take over. And, and the Romans would take over. And the Jewish people are there, but they have no Jewish king on the throne. And I want us to put ourselves in their shoes for those 400, what we call silent years, where, where God stopped the prophecy and the wondering and the longing in their hearts. When are we going to have a king on the throne? As God has promised, when, O oh Lord, when? And so Matthew addresses this. One way he does is he alludes to the Old Testament, either directly or indirectly, more than any of the other gospel writers. It's like he's showing the Jews in their own scriptures, here's where he's prophesied, and then in his gospel, here's where it's fulfilled. Do, do you see that, my brothers and sisters? He starts off with a genealogy. We did not read that whole genealogy on purpose in here because we know this culture. By the time we got to verse 4, half of us would be snoring, right? <laughs> a lot of us don't care a lot about genealogies, but they did. Genealogies were huge to the Jews. Just a couple examples. You think about when they went back to rebuild and some of the people wanted to be priests. In order to be a priest, they had to show they were descended from Aaron. Later on in the New Testament, you see that even Paul knew who he came from. He came from Benjamin. So if someone was going to come along claiming to be the long-awaited king and Messiah, guess what? They would have to prove that they came through Judah and through David because that's what the promises said. That's why he starts with a genealogy for the Jews. The signs he records, if you read Matthew's account, and I'm not going to spoil it, but if you read around the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, he goes out of his way to highlight the supernatural signs that happened on that day. And you think about why. It's because of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.22. Jews demand signs. You see, they're, they're looking for signs and Matthew's like, here they are. Don't miss what happened. The word kingdom. They're waiting for his kingdom, longing for it. That word comes up over and over and over in the book of Matthew, but not just kingdom. The other gospels, when they talk about kingdom, they usually say kingdom of God. Do you know what Matthew calls it primarily in his gospel most of the time? The kingdom of heaven. It's the same thing. You ever ask yourself why? 
It's because for many faithful Jews to write or speak the name of God, it was too holy to do that. So Matthew knows his audience, and he calls it the kingdom of heaven. Another reason we believe this is as he shares about different Jewish traditions and practices, he doesn't explain them. He just says this, and he assumes that people know. Other gospels, they explain them. It's kind of like, let me test something here. I hope this works. My parents just moved here from Ohio, and they didn't know I was going to do this. <laughs> Welcome aboard, Mom and Dad. If, if I say to you that yesterday Sparky was jumping around on the sideline, does that mean anything to you? No. No, that's Brutus, right? Sp who's, do you know who Sparky is? A yeah, hear all these natives, they're saying ASU, ASU. But I, I would have to explain who Sparky is. That's the mascot for the ASU Sun Devils because you're from Ohio. See, Matthew focusing on Jews knew they knew, and he didn't have to explain many of these practices. But as I think about that, I think about his primary audience. I want to ask you today, who, who's the audience that God has given you in your life? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, an ambassador for him, who do you have in your spheres of influence that you have the privilege of speaking into their lives? And then think about this. What are their longings and desires? And how could you speak the truth of Jesus into their lives in a way that shows them that the deepest things they're looking for are all found in him? What if we not only knew the truth of the gospel, but we, we thought long and hard about the people in our lives that we share it with and, and work to build that bridge? Now I want you to, to meet the king. I believe each gospel highlights an aspect of, of Jesus. You can find all of them through all the Gospels, but I'm talking about what's primary. I believe Matthew's introducing Jesus as the promised king that the Jews have been waiting for. Mark focuses on him as the servant of the Lord. Remember, those Romans love the action. Watch what the servant of the Lord can do. Luke, that perfect man for the Greeks. John, the son of God. But Matthew, that long-awaited Messiah, King. Think about some of the ways that comes up in the book. Think about the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7. I don't know what you think about those chapters, but I see the king explaining how citizens in his kingdom should live. When you read that Sermon on the Mount, think about Matthew 28, some of his last words. What's he say? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. But what I love about chapter one is, is he's going to introduce us to this long-awaited king. If there's something a tax collector should be able to do or any accountant, it's what? He should be able to, to balance the books, right? If you can't do that, you probably shouldn't be in one of those fields. And what I see Matthew doing in chapter one is balancing the books for us on Jesus Christ and who he is. He's going to start out by showing us in one ledger that he's fully man. And he's going to close the chapter by showing us that he's fully God. 
So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 1 with me. And the fully man part, here's where we start into that genealogy. It never fails to blow my mind, and it shouldn't yours either, that the eternal Son of God, who's alive from, from everlasting to everlasting, has a genealogy. It tells us that, that God is up to something here. And, and those of you who know your Bibles, you might be thinking, hey, Luke has one too. And if you've looked at them closely, you'll notice that the names are not all the same from the, the beginning to the end. You may be saying, why is that? Well, most scholars believe that here we're seeing his lineage through his stepfather, Joseph, which would establish his legal right to the throne. In Luke, you're seeing his actual bloodline through Mary. Both of them go through David, but they take some different twists and turns along the way. Another difference, remember Luke was writing to the Greeks, the ideal man. He, he goes all the way back to Adam. Where does Matthew start? Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why? Because he's writing primarily to the Jewish people. Those names were flashing lights in the Jewish mind. Just think about the promises that were made to those two. Think about David, 2 Samuel 7, 16. God had told David, your throne shall be established forever. Right? Think about Abraham way back in Genesis 12, 3. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Matthew says, hey, Jews, my brothers and sisters, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Something else interesting about his genealogy, he deliberately chose three sets of 14. Remember verse 17 that we heard earlier? All the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now when it says all the generations, you know what that means? It means all the generations he chose to record. Because if you compare this to Old Testament genealogies, you will notice that he left some names out. He wasn't setting out to give us a comprehensive list. He was only establishing to show us the connection. And he deliberately, think of this as a tax collector, a numbers guy. He, he was led to choose three sets of 14. Now I want to share a couple things here. I'm going to start with a disclaimer. There are some people who have gone way off the deep end with numbers in the Bible. They'll tell you all through the Bible there's these secret codes and if you can only interpret those codes, then you'll know the deepest, deepest meanings of God's word. I believe you can go too far with that. But we'd also be foolish not to acknowledge that numbers do have significance in the Bible. Think of the number seven, the number of completion, uh, the number three, holy, 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 or, or the Trinity, the number 40, how often that comes up. And scholars have proposed a couple possibilities that may have perked the ears of the Jews that maybe you and I would look over. And I just want to propose these as possibilities as well. Three sets of 14. 
Well, scholars have looked at the numerical value of David's name in Hebrew. You know what it is? 14. So some believe that as the Jews heard this, they would be hearing David, David, David. And as you look at those three sets of 14, you see three sets related to David. The first set talks about the origins of David's reign. Where, where did it come from? That second set talks about the rise and, and fall of David's reign. And the third set during their captivity talks about the absence of a Davidic king. But also, think about three fourteens. Okay, they've also proposed this. How many sevens is that? It is six sevens. Okay, and seven's the number of completion, right? So if you repeat Jesus' name as Jehoiakim's name was repeated, he begins what? The seventh seven. The completion of all completions. And I think about that, Galatians 4, 7, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. I just propose those as possibilities. We'll find out for sure when we get there. But a couple things I believe we can be certain of that we see in here. One is that Jesus came to save all. I believe that's hinted at by the people who are included in his human genealogy. Listen, there, there were women included. At, at a time where you look through the rest of the Bible, there are many genealogies without women mentioned at all. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Uriah's wife. Jesus came not only to save men, he came to save women. Gentiles, not just Jews. Think about Rahab. She's mentioned in here. She was a, a Canaanite. In Jericho, living in the wall, remember? Or Ruth, a Moabite. I believe that's a hint that he came not only for Jews, but for Gentiles as well. And all through it, we see sinners listed. Women and men. Think about Tamar, who's specifically mentioned. If you remember that story in Genesis, she pretended to be a prostitute to fool her father-in-law so she could have a child with him. Rahab was a prostitute who believed. Bathsheba had adultery with David. But as I said, it wasn't just the women. Abraham himself, he told some lies along the way because he wouldn't trust God enough to protect his wife. Judah wasn't just Tamar's fault. He's the one that had relations with her when he thought she was a prostitute. He's a sinner. Even David, who many of the Jews would look at, this was our most glorious king. Adultery with Bathsheba. His son Solomon started out so well, but he became a pagan, marrying, idol worshiper. And listen, I don't know what road you've walked to get in here today, what, what sins you have in your past or your present, but I believe this gives every one of us hope that this is a savior king who came for you. He came for me. It gets worse as you look at one of David's descendants, Manasseh. He's in this genealogy. Second Chronicles 33, 5. Listen to what he did. He built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Not only did he build idolatrous altars, he put them in God's temple. It goes on. It says, he burned his sons 
as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom and used fortune telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He's in the genealogy, and yet Jews who knew their history would also know his story also has a glimmer of hope. As wicked as he was, I want you to listen to what happened after he was punished for his sin. Second Chronicles 33:12 says, When he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. I read that, I'm like, man, if there was hope for Manasseh, there's hope for you. There's hope for me. But big picture, I think, oh, oh, the grace of God that he would enter such a race as this. There's a sudden change in the language of the genealogy. All through it, it's saying the father of, the father of, the father of. Shifts gears when it gets to Joseph in verse 16. It says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. When it says, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, the of whom is feminine, because he was not Joseph's son. He was born of Mary, but not of Joseph. Joseph was not the father of Jesus. Now think about all that that means. Jesus means Yahweh saves. Okay, so our, our Savior had to be fully man because man owed the price for our sin. Okay, but the sacrifice could not be one who inherited the sin nature from the generations above. Sacrifice had to not only be fully man, but fully God. And you say, how? How? And this is where he balances the books. We've been talking about fully man. Now he's going to show us he's fully God. The how is the virgin birth. The virgin birth. Now, when I think about the virgin birth, I'd like to paraphrase what someone wrote about the Trinity, because I think it applies here, too, to the virgin birth. If you try to fully understand the virgin birth, you are going to wreck your mind. We can dig, we can find out some, and we probably will around Christmas, but if you try to fully understand it, you're going to wreck your mind. If you deny it knowingly, you will wreck your soul. As I read this, I don't want to dissect it. I just want you to listen and ponder the wonder of what God did here. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. 
But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. There's one of those fulfilled prophecies I was talking about. Good Jews would remember that in their history there was a king. God came to him and said, I'm going to deliver you, and I'm going to give you a sign. That was the first fulfillment of, of this. So Jews with their ears open are going to say, whoa, a virgin birth? There is a deliverance coming. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. The wonder of it all. I told you Jesus means Yahweh saves. Joshua is the same name in Hebrew. You think about what Joshua did foreshadowing the ministry of Jesus. He, he led God's people into the promised land. This Joshua would lead his people to salvation. Christ means Messiah, the anointed one. Kings and priests had to be anointed. Jesus was anointed of the Holy Spirit. Now think about this genealogy. I, I contrast it with the genealogy in chapter 5. I was reading one man's thoughts about this. Have you ever read Genesis 5? It's depressing. It's depressing. It's talking about the fallout of sin in the world just before the flood. And you know what you hear over and over in there after the life of a man? And he died. 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 That's a, a genealogy of, of death and the consequences of sin apart from a savior. What we have here in Matthew chapter one is just the opposite. It's a genealogy of life and hope in Jesus Christ. And yet I wanna share something that blew my mind when I first read it. How many of you heard, have heard of a teacher out of the Calvary movement named Chuck Missler? Okay. He looked at Genesis chapter 5. He looked at the names in there, and he began to dive into the meanings of the names. And he admits, this is not without controversy because Hebrew root words are notoriously difficult. But as he unpacked the meanings of those names, even in Genesis 5, he believed God put a hint of the coming deliverance by the future king and Messiah, just in the meanings of those names. And I want to show you how he broke it down. There are about 10 names. The first one is Adam, which means man. Noah is the last one, means rest. There's one in the middle, Mahalalel, that means the blessed God. And I want to take all the meanings together, and I want you to listen to this. Man appointed mortal sorrow. The blessed God shall come down teaching. His death shall bring 
the despairing rest or comfort. Now, admittedly, he added a couple connecting words to make it flow. But if that's the case, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. But big picture right here, as we look at how Matthew balances the books on Jesus, fully man, fully God, how is your understanding of Jesus this morning? How is mine? Is, is it shaped by God's word? Or is it shaped by our own imaginations, our own desires, our own wishes? More to the point, have you trusted in the God-man, the promised King and Messiah for your deliverance, for your salvation? As I wrap up, I just was thinking this week, about, oh, the lengths he came to deliver us. And I think about that, and I think about someone I talked to on the phone a couple weeks ago. He lives in the valley, and he's a high-up boss in an exterminating company. And he talked about when they bring on new employees, he'll take them to a trailer with those big, dark openings underneath. (laughs) And you don't know what's in there. It could be a skunk, a black widow, rattlesnake, scorpion. And he told me something that caught my ear. He said, on their first day, I don't tell them, just go get in there. You know what I do? I grab my flashlight, I give them one, and I tell them, I'll go in with you. I'll go in with you. And I I think about that, and I can't help but think about Jesus, our King and Deliverer, how he came down here and entered the darkness that your sin and my sin has caused. And we have trouble underestimating how big of a step that was because we haven't been there yet. (laughs) But he hints at it in John 17 as he looks at the coming cross. Listen to what he said to his father. John 17, 4, he says, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And here's the longing of his heart. He says, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Oh, how far he came down. So can we close this morning by just just saying in our hearts, thank you, Lord, for the lengths you came to save us hopeless sinners. Can we thank God for a king who is fully man and fully God, just as we needed him to be? 1 Timothy 2.5 says there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Father, I thank you so much for calling Matthew. His calling out of a despised occupation to serve you gives us all hope. The genealogy we read gives us all hope of your grace. The virgin birth gives us assurance that you are the spotless lamb. You are fully God. You are infinite, and your sacrifice was enough. If there's anyone in this room who has not yet come to the cross of the Savior King, draw them there for salvation. May they put their trust in his death, his resurrection, for deliverance and hope for the future. And for those of us who have made that decision and and walk through this world with all of its ever-changing ideas 
constantly swirling and changing according to the whims of men. May you help us be faithful to set our lives by your bullseye. You told us who Jesus is. You've told us what it is to believe in him and walk with him. By faith and in the power of the Holy Spirit, may we aim for that target, for your glory. Lord, I pray as we close this morning that this offering would be just gratitude for the lengths you came and also pray in advance that as you prepare that family from Granville Elementary and lead us each to our part, that you would use that as a tangible expression of the fact not only that we love them, but you love them and have them on your heart. In Jesus' name, amen.